Chapter 5 Why a Wrestling Match In which a Christian upbringing, often advertised as being the answer to everything, the provider of comfort, and an all-around lucky thing to have had, is minutely and very subjectively examined in a slightly less rose-tinted light than is customary. For some, going out to church, singing the songs, voting Republican or conservative, and taking certain stances on gun control, capital punishment, abortion, and same-sex marriage is more than enough fun, apparently, in terms of Christianity. Fills up their time. Tom Wright points out that in any country other than the United States, if you say you're a Christian, no one is likely to assume they A, know how you vote, and B, what your positions are on all of these issues. For what it's worth, some don't seem to need anything more than mostly saying hooray for our side. It keeps them content, no wrestling required, except with anything or anyone who seems different or who wants change or growth of any kind. If you're like me, though, Christianity becomes a relationship thing more than an ideology, membership, or political stance thing. And like most relationships, it's going to take work. I've been asked, what does that mean, it's a relationship thing? It means that, although I am very open to the idea that there might be shoulds or supposed tos in my life, I am trying to discover God as something other than simply structure, boundaries, ethics, and limits. I want to feel like he's involved in the world in more ways than just that. I want to let him be a person, not just a standard for behavior. But it's a relationship. You have questions. You feel a need to go deeper. You are starting to realize that no matter what anyone says, it isn't simple. You may even feel that God is needing you to have some private chats with him, and that the discussion may get heated, and you start to be more and more certain that not too many other people are having these kind of chats with God as far as you can tell. If you're a teenager, and your church is a place where you fit in, it's life-affirming, I'm told. If it's a safe place where you trust people and there is warmth and kindness, then even if you don't continue in it when you're an adult, it's a warm, fuzzy memory. It's like Santa Claus. But if church is just one more place where you're being asked to sing and say and think and do things that seem to go against your conscience, your reason, your heart, and your connection with God, then it's something that can tear you in half. And it's endlessly confusing. Because for kids, the distinction between God himself and the adults who are talking about him but perhaps doing dubious stuff is a hard one. Kids are always very upset and confused and angry and bitter over adults who are suddenly revealed to be very, very human, flawed like we all are. They're not ready for how hard it is to be an adult, how easy it is to screw up. They see every single thing every adult around them does wrong but they don't know how hard it is to do better. The gospel is that because human beings can't be and do and live as well as one might hope or God requires, Jesus came and lived a human life, fulfilled every divine expectation, and now we're accepted by God. And God is able to work within us to transform us into the image of Christ over our lifetimes. My case was rather extreme. I've written about it in other books, but I feel I need to tell this story in a different way. If all goes well, it will take fewer than 498 pages this time. Here goes. It certainly could have been far worse. It's not like I believed God spoke through my parish priest and then that priest touched me in the rectory or anything. Nothing as bad as that. 
unlike a lot of people who then really will need to work on that parish priest slash God distinction right away. But still, I felt that I had to choose between my meeting culture and my God, that they were opposed, that I could not simply try to do both. Far easier if you are able to just treat the two as the same thing. But not all of us can do that. Louisa writes, The beginning of my exit was the earthquake that suddenly occurred when I was 39, when I suddenly saw that the meeting and the Lord were separate, that the meeting did not accurately live out Christ to me. What a shock! As soon as I saw that, something inside me changed. I was no longer under the control of the meeting principle that dictated that we should never have contact with other Christians because of fear of contamination, although I didn't have any contact until after I left. A lot of how much and how soon this conflict is thrust upon you often depends on the other Christians around you and how different their spirits are from Christ's, because not all communities are uniform in attitude and strictness. A lot of the time, it's not what people do and say and believe so much as how and why they do and say and believe things, what their heart is. Louisa writes about moving to work at a Christian publishing house in a different state in America. In Nebraska, there were certain people you, quote, knew were legalists, but they were not the majority. It was a rude awakening for me when I moved to Michigan as I suddenly experienced rigidity like I'd never had before, so many expressed and unexpressed rules, not only of what we were not to do or say or wear, but many expressed and unexpressed sentences as to what was expected of me, both in terms of, quote, godliness, and what I did with my non-work hours, which the meeting controlled. Yes, I let that happen. What was happening to me was, I was starting to not want to help let this happen anymore. Things were about to get pretty real. It was terrifying. Taking Things Too Seriously Having since spoken to a lot of people with similar upbringings, I find that most of them had parents who taught them to look at what went on at church with a bit of what my grade 8 teacher Roy Kinch called a jaundiced eye, with a bit of cynicism. People who were taking things a bit too seriously, and the very fact itself that it was possible to take things too seriously, were being daily pointed out to some other people's kids by their parents, either overtly, in words, or by said parents clearly not taking those people and things terribly seriously at all. And that sounds very healthy, an essential life lesson. You can't take absolutely everything and everyone deadly seriously. But my parents didn't teach me that because they were those very people who were taking things too seriously. So as far as the people in my family were concerned, there was nothing wrong at our meeting that couldn't be fixed by taking it more seriously. If it wasn't working, the only conceivable solution was to do it more and harder. Louisa lost her parents, so she didn't have anyone to tell her not to take things too seriously either. I was one who really believed what I heard in meeting and did not have a family to drive home with where parents would talk to each other in front of their children about what they heard in the meeting. In the years since I left, when I've spoken with previous meeting folks, they often say to me, you didn't believe all that, did you? And I say, yes, of course, I did believe what was said in meetings, at conferences, and in the local assembly reading meetings. Louisa like me, is the sort of person who can't seem to help taking everything seriously, taking people at their word. 
Adolescence is about fitting in. It's about finding what kind of person you are and meeting up with others you can be yourself with. One of the main reasons I was never a part of my church youth group culture was that I took everything that was done and said at meeting far too seriously, thought about it too much, felt about it too deeply, and I didn't find others who were the same, not for a long time. My cousin, who grew up to be one of the preachiest atheists I know, says that a culture like ours raises rebels and liars. I wasn't much of either of those, making me suspect a third option. I was more of a zealot, trying to make that system work for me by doing it harder. If you wanted to fit in with other teens, you needed that delicate balance of being somewhat into it all, but only to a point. I was well past that point at the best of times. I was definitely a zealot. A fanatic. There is a keen, high note of crazy in fanaticism. It doesn't help one get on in groups. If one is a zealot, one either has to lead in a group or go away. Into the wilderness is customary. But most people either tried to develop a rebel identity that involved transforming the church-trained shame into a form of rebellious pride and causing upset, or learned to deceive so as to be freer. Melody says, I became a liar. There seemed to be a lot of pressure for life to be going perfectly all the time. Many of my issues lie in an inability to communicate truthfully. I did not know how to be heart honest with people. I didn't know it was okay to be truthful from the heart because people in the assembly churches are not allowed to have problems, marital, depression, etc. If you had any issues like that, it meant you'd fallen away from the Lord, and you couldn't admit that. On Humans of New York today, there is a picture of a girl, face carefully out of frame, in New York City, without her parents' knowledge, to visit her 55-year-old, Fifty Shades of Grey-style married boyfriend. She says, My father is the son of a missionary. My parents would always do room searches where they'd go through my stuff and take anything they didn't agree with and break any CDs that they didn't think were Christian. I tried to hide things behind bookshelves. I even tried to create a hole in my wall. But nothing worked. I remember getting in trouble for leaning up against my friend at church. The youth pastor said we were acting like lesbians, and my mom said I was ruining her reputation. I've been on antidepressants since I was 14, which is the age my parents started taking me to psychiatrists to figure out what was wrong with me. The psychiatrists, the antidepressants, and the room searches all sound like failed attempts to adjust and control this young girl to church normal. But there she is, having kinky sex with a married 55-year-old man in a different city. Control and limits to her freedom don't seem to be the answer to what's bothering her. In fact, she seeks out more of those two things than her parents or a psychiatrist would ever dole out in the form of something she receives as love from this man, an older guy with control and who puts limits on her freedom that extend to handcuffs, ball gags, and the like. Ruth quite convincingly claims full marks as having been a card-carrying zealot, even before she'd hit her teenage years. She says, I was a zealot, a book-burning, censorship-practicing, judge-anyone-as-unspiritual-whose-level-of-zeal-didn't-match-mine zealot. I was a very Daniel who purposed within himself that he would not defile himself with the king's meat, the king's meat being whatever happened to be worldly. 
I became this zealot at eleven years old, when I first took my place at the Lord's table. The holy solemnity of the act and the grave responsibilities impressed upon my mind lifted me to what I can only explain as a kind of religious ecstasy. It was at this time in my life that I began to read the Bible, and I read through the entire Bible on my own, even those jawbreakers and chronicles and inexplicable Ezekiel, liberally marking it up with pink and yellow highlighters and pen notes from the reading meetings. One time during this period of my life, I was staying overnight with a brethren family. I was hanging out with my friend, more like acquaintance whom I grew up with and saw every week, according to my current definition of friendship, when her brother called upstairs that everyone was going for a nighttime swim in the swimming pool and hurry up and get changed so we could join in. Now, growing up, I loved swimming more than any other sport. I felt a thrill of delight and excitement shoot through me at the idea of swimming at night in an outdoor pool. Very dangerous feeling. Let's go, my friend entreated. Let me just read my two chapters of the Bible for the night before I go do fun stuff, I replied. Dutifully, I covered my head with my lace mantilla and read my chapters. I cannot say I got anything out of the reading. Too excited. Now I'm going to pray, I announced after I finished reading. By the time I finished my devotions and got downstairs, the other kids were already out of the swimming pool, and the opportunity was over forever. But I was pleased with myself in spite of the bitter disappointment. I had put the Lord first. Ruth then goes on to talk about how the chief among the various Mrs. Hayhoes was quoted as having said that the children who ended up staying in the meeting, the ones who continued going on well for him, were not the ones who went off by themselves, even to read the Bible, and so on. The ones who went off on their own were the first ones to leave, the Mrs. Hayhoe had said. At the time, Ruth said she felt that things like night swims and all those worldly Star Trek books she gave up to read the latest Christian treasury and notes of interest and other booklets of written ministry were sacrificed for nothing. It's almost like what determined whether a person stayed in the meeting had more to do with how much of a group person they already were. It's almost like the system did little to serve individualists. But then, what system does much for individualists? Ruth did leave in time, so there is no doubt something to what the Mrs. Heho said. I heard the same thing from others. Going off on your own as a young person was a troubling sign of individuality and a disinterest in playing with others. Jake, raised in a more mainstream, definitely not brethren church, and working with youth group kids, says, I was made aware of them as I began to question things and grow up to be confident in Jesus for myself, not just being wholly validated by my parents' approval. What strung together all of these unwritten rules was fear. Mary writes, as to rebels, liars, and zealots, I think I did some of all three. Rebelled against legalism in mostly passive-aggressive ways. Zealously judged those who rebelled more openly, while kind of envying them also. And tried to keep all the rules, at least on the surface. Making me a liar. Doing what I didn't believe in, while feeling guilty for doing so. Anne also judged people who broke rules when she was an adolescent. She says, Yeah, I told on someone who was drinking. It was against the rules, and you are responsible to report them if they are breaking the rules. Otherwise, you are complicit. It was really simple, until it wasn't. Darlene says, The hostile leaders produced hostile and nasty children who grew up to resemble them. Young people meetings were a session of showing off, learned from their parents for many years. 
Who had the best hat, the best clothes, the best car? If you were unable to have these things, you were ignored. It didn't matter if you were a beautiful person inside. It only mattered what you looked like on the outside. Lots of boring men made rules that made me feel that there was no meaning to life. On a less serious note, Anne adds, Another time I was traveling in a third world country with another meeting girl and we were staying with a family and they had a TV, but they hid it in a bedroom. And one evening we were asking, where are you guys? And they were in the room watching TV and they sheepishly let us see it. Probably a soccer game. It was a tiny TV. I think I have a photo of some people looking uncomfortably at me while I photographed the evidence just because I thought it was funny. I was kind of teasing them by taking a picture. Some brethren families had a TV hidden somewhere. I'll never know how many. Some people threw a quilt or Afghan thing over it, and many brethren had Narnia-style wardrobes so you could close the door to hide the TV sitting inside there. Instead of Aslan, there was the A-Team. It was like people who smoke pot. If you had someone visiting who was known to likewise indulge, you might reveal the TV and watch something. Apart from that, it was kept safely stashed away. Unless you were a rebel, then you openly mentioned TV shows you'd watch standing right in front of the meeting hall just to be a badass. As for me, I wanted to work the system, not fight or evade it. Make it pay off. Be successful in it. Work hard at it. An odd thing is that once one shows one is going for gold, that one wants platinum member full Pharisee status, people treat one differently. Kids avoided me because they knew they couldn't trust me not to inwardly judge their rule-breaking and pleasure-seeking, couldn't trust me not to look down on them and maybe even gossip about it, and adults had used me as an example for their kids before I hit high school. Why couldn't they show an interest in meeting like I did? For their part, their kids knew better than to want to be more like me. And then adults and other platinum members sometimes warn people like me not to hang out with certain others, at risk of losing our platinum member status. Johan remembers years ago at a brethren camp being taken aside by the hey-ho in charge and privately told that Steve, a fun young guy I was enjoying hanging out with due to his liveliness, wasn't a fitting companion for a Christian. Steve was from the world and wasn't responding quickly enough to brethren indoctrination. So, of course, Johan stopped hanging out with Steve immediately. It was like that. I heard of and witnessed this don't hang out with him, he's worldly thing, all too often. It was very competitive. It was beyond stressful to keep up with. Carol says, I was always watching myself, watching other people, watching me, watch myself, with God watching the whole lot of us. Sheesh. My worldly, non-Taylor brethren, work colleagues, eventually told me some months after I left the Taylorites that us brethren girls even walked differently to others. More nose in the air, I was told when I asked. And I still had and have that walk and that feeling of being watched by others, I think. Ugh. I know of no reason why or mechanism for so many of us growing up to speak with flat, monotone voices and to walk without twisting at the waist or moving our hips more than is absolutely necessary to walk with, but still, somehow. Louisa adds, They were everywhere, always assessing me, and I always came up short. 
I never passed the test to become fully, unconditionally accepted. I remember how impossible it was to fit. If you were more legalistic or more loose than what was room temperature for a given clique, that was it for you. I'd been born into my church culture, so indoctrination into it happened without my choosing it or knowing what was going on. I no more would have used the term my culture back then than a fish would think much about water and pollution. But I was like the proverbial frog in a pot of water on a stove, which pot is slowly being heated up to boiling. If I didn't make a jump of some kind, that was going to be it for me. It was killing me, literally. Louisa, having lost her parents young, writes, I spent a significant amount of time with legalists. I was impressionable, and they were thorough in indoctrinating me. For about 15 years after I left the meeting, my dreams at night were of these people, or me having to be at a meeting conference, or I was still working at the Brethren Publishing House. I had a fear-slash-pride-slash-desire to be what would be perceived as godly, to be in the innermost circle. I craved parenting, thus many felt permission to instruct me, and I heard these, quote, godly ones speaking ill of those who walked the fence between the meeting and the camp, or who were borderline worldly, whatever is that. So I towed the mark as best I could, and in the end it utterly exhausted me, to the point where I had a nervous breakdown about a year after I first went to the publishing house. Like Louisa, I didn't really rebel. Given my upbringing, family, and fanatic nature, I tried to do meeting more, harder, and it started to break me. Eventually, I was having trouble even leaving my bedroom, let alone showing up at meeting events in school. But the show had to go on, didn't it? I had to appear five times each week and get good reviews, all to maintain that coveted lofty position of being viewed as especially decent and acceptable. In one sense, we all felt deeply insignificant. Our thoughts and feelings could not have mattered less to anyone. In another way, we were always in the spotlight, our every smallest move being scrutinized and discussed in our absence by people with no internet or televisions to otherwise pass the time. We knew our souls were being discussed and found wanting. Living the meeting life eventually made me want very much to be dead. I was raised a Christian, but I was lost in a very real way, like a lot of people I knew. Not as to an afterlife, but certainly as to the life I had to face each day. I had been set adrift. Meeting didn't work for me, yet I couldn't let go of the idea of God. I was stuck. Yes, adrift but stuck. My metaphors are mixed. They are lambs to the mire. And because I was caught in those cracks I was falling between, I really started to show the strain. It could not be hidden. Endless horrific nightmares, dizzy spells, months of depression, punctuated by suicidal urges, lethargy, and despondency. You are rooted in your culture, and your culture is rooted deep into you, like your teeth like your lungs, and I felt all of that being slowly torn out of me. It felt like God and reality were pulling me in one direction, and my culture, family, and social milieu were pulling me almost as hard in the other. The simple solution would be to say that I was just depressed and needed pills because something was wrong with me. 
That was, of course, what my family doctor said. He also went to our church. But the reality is that I had stuff to work through, and the system and culture I was trying to force myself to belong to and succeed in was a problem rather than a help. In fact, the whole system was deeply suspicious and fearful of anyone who was even trying to work through much of anything, because that person was evidence of the system not being enough, not being right for everyone just as it was. People who work at McDonald's aren't supposed to bring Burger King food in and eat it. People in Kentucky Fried Chicken uniforms aren't supposed to wear them as a Dairy Queen to eat at lunchtime. To this day, I meet some people who can get by in meeting circles, and others, often their siblings, who simply can't. To get by, you just have to show up, sit there, and not be discontented or restless. You don't have to look like you love it, but you have to never look like you're looking elsewhere. You can't look dissatisfied and searching. You can say, well, it's not perfect, but... You have to have a but at the end, one which signifies that your own will remain in that chair each Lord's Day morning to perpetuity. I wasn't looking elsewhere, but I was having trouble even showing up, and when I did, my responses to other people were not the required placidly contented ones. I slowly realized that my meeting culture was poisoning me. It was toxic. I talked to every understanding brethren person I could find to ask for advice, and they offered sympathy but pretty much zero insight. The process I was going through was unstoppable. It went better when I helped it happen. Throughout my twenties, I gradually left much of my culture behind in my thinking and living, parsing the God from the meeting as the years went by. By the time they kicked me out, the nightmares and all the rest had long since mostly faded. But I didn't just take off running or throw the baby Jesus out with the holy water. There was a whole lot of wrestling that went on before, during, and after. This book was going to be called Wrestling with God. Unfortunately, there are roughly 500 Christian books already called that, with all of my very own cover ideas. So I had to take a different path. Maybe most people just aren't like I was. I know that many simply go off and rebel for a while, drinking, dancing, drugging, whoring, gambling, voting, or whatever, and then get it worked out of their systems, usually by around the time they have their first child. Then they can come right back in, repent of it all, and help out the meeting by warning kids not to do what worked out so very well for them as compared to, say, me, who didn't rebel. They can be the returned, celebrated prodigals, while I get to be the emo elder brother. And I know that for many other people, church and God and all that stuff has simply never been a very big deal to begin with. It had never really taken root. So as adults, they now can simply take it or leave it. They don't need it. It doesn't hurt them either. It's just not important. Many of these people prefer to keep their church life going a bit. Unless things go beyond a certain point, of course. Some even tell me that although they don't necessarily believe all of what is said at church, in some cases much of anything that's said there, including the idea of there literally being a God, still they believe it's good stuff to say, and good stuff to listen to, and a good thing for children to hear especially, that it will provide some basic ethics, as if you can't get ethics any other way than at church. They speak as if they believe that religion isn't exactly true, but it makes people behave better, so you should tell it to kids. But it really wasn't like that for me at all, either. 
All this meeting stuff was the only hell of which I believe I will ever know the torment. I know there are many like me out there, and so I'm writing this for you and for anyone else who's interested. I know not everyone is like me. I know not everyone had my experience of meeting, but I think we should get a book too, one without a sunset on the cover. I know there are people who could thrive in their church culture. Mostly, they got their hands on power and influence and remade things there somewhat to be more comfortable. They tend to maintain power and influence for their whole lives, even if it means being an assembly with maybe two last names represented in total, theirs being the most important. I have trouble being heard by those kinds of people. They don't see why it's so hard. Just get along, they say. Get involved. Make stuff work. Contribute. So I ask if I can help out at their church. With, you know, the stuff that I'm best at. Reading, writing, speaking, teaching, music. The stuff I'm paid to do in the world outside their micro-church. This has always brought the conversation to an abrupt close. Some Christian kids get messed up. Some Christian kids, it must be said, get pretty messed up. Perhaps you've met some. Many are medicated. Others seem to need to be. And you don't even have to teach Christian kids a bunch of stuff that's absolutely wrong, or hit them, or anything, in order to mess them up. You simply lock them away from the world, and starve their little hearts, and make them afraid and guilty about everything that might give them relief. You teach them to wall themselves up inside themselves, not let their feelings out, and not let anyone or anything joyful in either. That seems to do the trick just fine, especially if they are delicate, intelligent, aware, and sensitive little tykes. You can simply omit things, slant things, overemphasize things, or otherwise present what used to be biblical ideas in such a fashion as to use them in ways God certainly never intended. Fear and control ways, instead of love and liberty ways. Churches famously raise children with more secrecy and shame and repression than is healthy which many licensed therapists are discussing to these now-adult church kids, monthly conversations with whom help said professionals pay for their timeshares in Miami. You can deny that this is a thing, or you can recognize it when you see it and try to help. A hint, saying, Get over it! Smarten up and stop feeling sorry for yourself. Think of Jesus instead of yourself. Isn't terribly helpful to messed up Christian kids. Sing! Harder! Smile! Those do not have a proven track record of success either. In my case, it wasn't that my church life was terribly full of bad things that really messed me up. It was all the nothing that was the real killer. The lack of good things. The wrong-headed attempts to create good simply by purging away bad. It was that a whole lot of mundane, comforting, innocuous stuff was seen as quite normal for kids at school, but my life had simply been stripped of most of that, without really having any of it replaced with much of anything. There was just way too much nothing. I wasn't supposed to listen to rock music. It wasn't that I was encouraged to listen to classical or Christian rock music instead. Just no rock music, or country, or rap, or pop. It wasn't the music, I don't think. Not really. It was our loving it that scared adults. Jade grew up in a surprisingly similar home, with surprisingly similar rules, apart from being encouraged to listen to Christian music instead of it being viewed with suspicion in his house. Despite a more conventional evangelical upbringing, Jake reports, 
What was resisted by my culture and was oppressed was listening to non-Christian music, especially heavy metal and rap. As to be expected growing up in this situation, when I was 10 or 13, I was hugely into metal, and since then I've really loved hip-hop. I was lucky that my upbringing wasn't more legalistic because of how important music was to me in a lot of hard times. I don't know where I would have turned otherwise. There was a way we all dressed at my meeting, in the context of the broader array of fashion seen at, say, a high school. It did not allow for self-expression or uniqueness. It was comfortably affluent and wholesome. It definitely cost a bit, too. But I wasn't an 80s preppy jock type from an upper-middle-class home who took ski weekends and wanted to become a businessman. So I didn't want to dress like that. That look didn't present me to the world as myself. It didn't feel right at all. Yet that was how we dressed. And we weren't just walking billboards for Ralph Lauren or the game of polo. There was also a class level, a race, an income bracket, and a lifestyle being advertised by our clothing. It involved a lot of beige and khaki, pinstripes and checks, loafers, golf, polo, and rugby shirts. It involved business casual. This look was what most of us were expected to be sporting. It was right for Christians. Nothing urban, nothing alternative, nothing colorful, nothing edgy, nothing bohemian, tastefully, quietly affluent, and decent and middle class, because that's what looks good. It was a good testimony. Of course, there was a whole deeper level of legalism than I ever lived under, going on in some far-flung pockets of brethrenism in North America. The especially hardcore meeting kids were dressed by their mothers like it was 1962, JFK was still president of the United States of America, and the civil rights movement and the hippies hadn't happened yet and hopefully never would. Their parents clearly felt that it was holy to dress their kids like nerd stereotypes that were echoed in the look of George McFly from Back to the Future or the nerds from Revenge of the Nerds. Old was holy. Modern was depraved. They seemed to feel that dressing in a way that the world decried as outmoded clearly showed everyone that for some homes the moral decline of America had not progressed past our front gate. There'd be no liberal decay here. So it was jean skirts and sneakers for the girls... But I did not have to suffer that. My folks saw no reason why, when Michael Jackson was moonwalking across everyone's televisions, that I needed to dress like mission control staff during Neil Armstrong's own moonwalk 20 years previous. There was none of that around where I grew up. I was allowed to dress in a normal, conservative, middle-of-the-road way. Didn't have to purposely nerd it up for God. I can't imagine my life would have been improved by looking any more nerdy than I already did. Talking to various ex-brethren people, I am made aware that although my father's meeting career crash landing so heavily was very hard on our family, the opposite can be pretty hard to deal with too. I have spoken with any number of people whose fathers continued and continue to be men of great status among the brethren, and this brings with it a whole host of problems. Anne mentions how hard it could be to be a missionary's kid, to always feel under scrutiny, but also to feel like decisions as fundamental as where the family would be living or where the kids would be going to school were never primarily about her or what she needed. A bone-deep experience of not mattering to the family nearly as much as meeting culture was part of so many of our lives. It was exponentially worse if your family had a lot of status in that culture. It made it really hard for a teenager and 20-something to find out who she was and what life she was going to live. Anne writes, It is kind of revolting to read my journals from my teens. 
but I have the record of my sickly, predictable Christian bladder that is exactly what everyone was delighted for me to be. I can relate to how the meeting culture made identity issues clouded by discouraging individuality and uh, presenting this notion of what type of woman I ought to be, wearing a nice dress, being modest, witnessing, praying for the young men to take part in the meetings, helping with dishes after a meal, chatting in a polite manner with older people, all with the self-conscious awareness that people would be nodding with approval and maybe some guy would notice how pious and virtuous I was and want to marry me. But I was supposed to be unconscious of all that and just be naturally beautiful and good. Meanwhile, I was into Hemingway and Steinbeck and wanted to sail boats or rock climb or build forts in the woods. If I had my way, I would have worn nothing but jean cutoffs and t-shirts. Not everyone follows all the church expectations in a given church culture to the same degree, and small groups of friends conspire to not follow them at all. Carol describes her experience in New Zealand of not necessarily following all the rules by unspoken consensus. Interestingly, the rules we thought were particularly shit, like girls wearing a headscarf and bicycling to school, we just did not enforce. Bizarre. Luckily, most of my year group of Taylor brethren at state school were sufficiently attuned to each other's morals that we just coexisted quite happily in that bizarrity where some Taylor brethren rules were followed and others were ignored. I was lucky in that way too, but I know lots of other exclusive brethren kids who were not. Life for them was very different and much more locked down. I can only imagine. I knew some of those kids back in the day. Most of them aren't doing terribly well nowadays either. Questioning. At some of our Meeting Young People's weekends, teenagers would be encouraged to ask adults questions about the Bible, while anonymously slip notes into a shoebox so adults could answer the questions. And for the most part, would not. They mostly wanted the Bible talk to be over so they could go play more volleyball and eat more chips. When teens did ask questions, they often weren't so much asking things about God as they were simply objecting to the meeting rules. The ones we'd all lived under our whole lives and couldn't imagine fading away. The unwritten rules, which weren't called rules, forbidding entertainment such as television, movies, pop music, dancing, live concerts, and spectator sporting events and all the rest. The rules you could break if you liked, but we all knew what that made you. Girls would put a slip of paper in asking, Why can't girls wear pants? This wasn't a question so much as a complaint, and the answers involved middle-aged men reading the stitched-together bits of verse fragments that were traditionally applied to take the freedom in question away from us. Then the claim would be made that, of course, we didn't follow rules. No, we were free. It was just that, of course, we wouldn't feel quite right about breaking these unwritten rules either. We were free to, but wouldn't. Not if we really loved Jesus, not if we wanted our lives to work out right. The rules were particularly hard on girls. Girls in our brethren group had to deal with mandatory long hair, little or no makeup or jewelry, and no wearing trousers or shorts to meetings, as they were men's apparel. Fifteen-year-old girls got taken aside by frantic middle-aged men who told them they simply couldn't wear jean skirts that exposed their legs right up to their knees and not wear pantyhose in July. And the wives were often more aggressive about these dire warnings than the men. 
melody from a group so similar to mine that we haven't yet been able to work out what our groups even called each other, says she did not generally want to make waves. She says, My concern was more about avoidance of conflict. I preferred to keep the peace, except on the few occasions where I would deliberately rile up my dad by asking why we did certain things. It was not okay for girls to wear pants to Sunday school picnics or anything like that. Even to this day at Young People's Stuff, if it's in the church building, dresses and head coverings are expected of females. Guys, on the other hand, show up in jeans, shorts, suits, whatever they feel like. I'd be made aware of rules by frowns and sad faces when I broke them. When I cut my hair short at age 18, my dad didn't speak to me for three days. At church, our most controlling elder would make comments followed by, don't you think so too? As in, everyone who wants to be baptized must also want to be received into assembly fellowship, don't you think so? Or, it's pretty clear that Paul's name changed immediately after conversion, don't you think? Or, scripture is very clear about whatever, don't you think? You were told what the right answer was and expected to fall in. The thread was keeping to the party line as laid down by the most controlling elder and being sure your Christian image wasn't tarnished. Some families simply ruled out girls wearing pants or shorts to meeting events. In others, like my family, girls and women weren't allowed to wear pants at all. Darlene, from our branch of Brethren, writes, The rules made by Brethren were senseless and caused much stress. As a young girl, I was not allowed to wear pants. Going anywhere during winter was so painful from being inadequately dressed. Walking home from school was brutal, as Ottawa winters were bitterly cold. Anne, missionary's kid in a foreign land, writes, I remember the first time I got to wear jeans. My whole life, until seventh grade, I could wear only skirts or culottes, long, baggy shorts. Finally, we must have worn Dad down. So he took us to a thrift store, and I wound up with a second-hand pair of jeans that were boys' jeans. Ironic, because the whole reason we'd not been allowed to wear pants all along was some verse about not wearing men's clothes. Somehow, that slipped through. And then, some people in the meeting who were super legal were making comments and noticing that we had pants. Meanwhile, others wore them. In a third-world country, uh, women and girls would often wear pants to meeting, and it wasn't a crazy scandal. Of course, I never did. However, I remember hating wearing skirts, and once I went into the bathroom at the meeting room and changed into pants or culottes or something and was hanging out in a non-skirt outside the meeting room, I was asked not to do that again. Carol, in a stricter brethren group in New Zealand, says, when asked what happened when she broke the rules, Nothing happened because I was so practiced in the brethren art of deception that I made sure nobody found out I was breaking the rules. I bought women's weekly magazines and novels. I cut my hair to get rid of split ends, carefully and cleverly using a match to singe the ends like my mother had done when I was small so they didn't look cut. Inside myself, I initially felt a bit of guilt, but had already decided to break the rule and take responsibility for whatever fallout, godly, parental or brethrenly, ensued. So I just got on with it after a while. Sometimes my brethren conscience would kick in, and I'd stop the rule breaking for a while. But the desire would overtake me and I'd be back into whatever it was again. That cycle only repeated a few times before I gave up the guilt and let conscience be damned. Proportionately, I knew that mostly I was a good rule-abiding girl, so I think I sort of contented myself that the maths just about stacked up okay. 
Anne writes, I recall distinctly reading books about hiking, rock climbing, sailing, outdoorsy people, and feeling like I couldn't do that stuff because I always had to be at a meeting on Sunday, which totally cramped my style. Nothing I liked was explicitly against the rules, but it wasn't Christ-centered, so it wasn't encouraged. In fact, finding a career path that was exciting was unimportant, and it has been hard for me to prioritize doing something that I like. The overwhelming message I got was that what I like doesn't matter. I did keep things I liked a secret a lot. Novels were discouraged, although not outright banned. I was not allowed to have fashion magazines, which I enjoyed reading in the library. I did feel that my pleasures had to be secret, even though there was nothing bad about them. Melody says, Enforcement was just through peer pressure. No one stepped too far out of line. I was always afraid of drawing too much attention to myself to do anything really transgressive, like wear pants to a meeting. I would do things like wear lipstick instead. No one ever said anything, and I'm pretty sure I got the look from a lot of people, but it wasn't bad enough to make me stop. However, my forays into rule-breaking were very limited. I didn't know you could have a real, friendly relationship with God. Everyone I knew seemed to be so formal with Him, praying in King James English, etc. No one talked about God or Jesus like they were real people. We talked a lot about living in the fear of the Lord, which I still don't feel has been adequately defined. Our common usage of fear is too Old Testament smitey for me, and from my own reading, I just don't see that that's how Jesus is. He's long-suffering and forgiving, not waiting to smite me. Anne made her break with brethren rules, mostly to connect with a guy. For her, it was... Dating a non-Christian, and later, having sex. I think I was just doing what was natural for someone my age, connecting with another individual. It wasn't breaking rules as much as just following my nature. Humans are supposed to connect with other humans, date them, have physical relationships. I was conflicted because I'd been told this was wrong but I was just being human. So I kept secrets inside me, which was hard and not fun. It made me feel very alone, trying hard to live in two different worlds that were completely contradictory. I tried so hard to bridge the divide. I thought I could somehow sneak into marriage soon enough that I would avoid the controversy. Louisa didn't break the rules much before she left Brethren Culture, really. She couldn't. Just when she was starting to feel free to wear pants around the house, she still found that... When the doorbell rang, I'd quick put on a skirt before I went to the door. It was this increasing double life that was one of the many reasons why I left the meeting. As I could not handle the disruption it brought to me internally, it was like I was lying all the time, simply by living two lives. I was a brethren guy and didn't have to dress very differently from other guys at my school. And I didn't ask too many questions about our rules at youth group events of this kind. I was weird, like a few of us. Instead, I had questions that I felt were even more important than ones about why we couldn't have TV or go to dances. Mine were more directly about God himself. I didn't ask the middle-aged men who spoke at our meetings because I kind of knew they didn't seem to think that deeply, or spouting party-line stuff, mostly. I've since met some others like me. We had moved on at that point to wrestling with who God was rather than just smarting under the meeting rules. The person rather than the culture was what we were now focusing upon. We'd been raised to believe that there was a God, and we assumed there was one, but who was he? And what did he have to do with all this meeting stuff? 
I'm sure other teens rolled their eyes when we got doctrinal, but some of us were starting to have strong reservations about how meeting and meeting Christians were perceived and how they behaved in the world at large. It wasn't mummy and daddy are fighting. It was the Bible and the meeting are telling me two different things. We felt like we were being pulled in two directions, because we were. Things we felt and things we believed were starting to be at odds. Internal fissures and rips were forming in us. Programming and growth were starting to very clearly be at odds. But when you tried to talk about any of that, the adults started looking for somewhere to hide. They'd warn you against that kind of thinking. They'd tell you the Bible had all the answers, and they'd really, really recommend reading it, a chapter, every single day. This was little help if, like me, you had read it years earlier, continued to read it, and it daily caused more, rather than less, wrestling. If it indicted meeting culture, more than vindicated it. The people I talked to about this book were unanimous, even those who are now atheists, in saying that the Bible seemed to contradict the legalism seen in our meeting culture, if one read the whole thing, and not just the out-of-context bits used to support the legalism. Ruth says, I recall being so indoctrinated as a small child that I literally thought that a woman who wore pants, trousers, could not be a Christian woman. When I read the scripture used to make that claim as a discerning adult and realized that the surrounding scriptures were completely ignored, I felt that application was quite a stretch. As a teenager, if you came to adults with even more questions because you'd been reading the Bible, as they suggested, this really upset them because it was supposed to work the other way. Reading the Bible was supposed to soothe and shut down your inquiries, not make you look at things more deeply. It was supposed to have the answers to everything. The Answers to Everything If someone came to visit our meeting, having been working on a different continent, or who were good with teens, I collected advice the way some people collect autographs. But when it came down to it, they had a very limited set of predictably unhelpful answers. Number one, always come out to every single meeting and event unless you're really sick. Always. Number two, read the Bible, a chapter every single day before breakfast. Always. Number three, pray that God help you be a good meeting-going Christian. Always. Number four, don't think about yourself, ever. In fact, you just plain think too much. Number five, be exercised before the Lord about giving up all forms of worldly entertainment which Christians cannot safely enjoy, ever. 6. Do what all the meeting people do, and don't break the rules or question them. Follow God's flock. Happiness and blessing are to be found there, only. 7. Keep it simple, and have a child's simple faith, only. But even when I had been a child, my faith had been anything but simple. I had really wished it were, but it hadn't been. I tend to think a lot of things. I always have. That's the way my head is. We don't get to decide things like this, and we don't have a control panel so we can adjust who God made us to be when our why hast thou made me thus crises occur. So I thought about the stuff in the Bible and the stuff in my life and the stuff in the meeting. A lot. I sure didn't have much else to do. People told me I was making everything too complicated. For my part, I thought they were being shallow and thoughtless, pretending extremely complicated things were simple. Apparent contradictions made me dig right in and try to get to the heart of the matter, rather than shrug and throw up my hands with a wry smile. 
So the biggest problem I had with meeting culture and attitudes came from my reading the Bible and then going to meeting. I could hear bits of that book being slanted, misquoted, and misused while we sat there several times a week required to listen. I heard them change in to to in Matthew 18.20 over and over in official correspondence. I thought about why they might be doing that. I knew what the biblical contexts were from which all these phrases were being so roughly torn out. I knew why the person speaking didn't read the very next verse, or the previous one, as they frequently argued against the point being made, or showed that the passage quoted was about a different topic entirely than the one we were using it to address. Often, verses were being used to say pretty much exactly the opposite thing to what they said when left in their chapters. Verses helping people live good lives with substantial freedom were being used to take away all freedom and put those people whom Christ died to set at liberty under an entirely new form of human bondage to law. Dodgy translations of words were being exploited. If the Bible was trying to say, avoid all forms of evil, but the King James said, the appearance of evil instead, this was used to explain why going into a convenience store which rented movies was a bad testimony. It appeared evil. Because someone, for example church folks, might think you rented porn. So it was the appearance of evil to go in there. Was it a form of evil, though, I would ask, and be told to be quiet? They knew about that translation problem, but they exploited rather than corrected for it. They needed a verse to say that, and there wasn't one. But not all kids were like me. Many children get pretty into church social stuff and enjoy the group and the sense of belonging. Often they experience the Bible as merely a few scraps decorating church teachings here or a paraphrased story there, stripped down and refitted to get those key church points across. Trimmed to size, it fits neatly into those niches then. If you get scissors, you can decorate a Christmas tree with the collected works of William Shakespeare, Dickens, or even the Bible, cut into little star shapes and chains of people holding hands. It's fun and easy. You just have to cut it up. Some of the happy kids who really enjoy church events decide to work in a church when they grow up, and they sign up for Bible school. Non-brethren kids, I mean. There are no Bible schools for TW brethren kids. And in my day, anyway, it certainly wasn't encouraged for us to consider letting outsiders teach us about God's word. But in churches, sometimes the kids for whom youth group and church are warm, accepting, euphoric things decide to go to Bible school to make a career out of that kind of thing. What isn't often mentioned in Christian circles is how many of these youth group keeners, upon having a good, hard, prolonged look at the Bible itself as a whole for the first time, taking it in in larger chunks rather than pureed and spoon-fed to them, then have a strong allergic reaction to it. Sometimes they throw out the concept of God outright within a decade of having had their first real look at the Bible as its own thing. It's a bit of a sore point how churches mainly tend to be able to keep young people only until they go away to school, even in many cases, Bible school. What really isn't often mentioned is that some of the ones who lose their belief in God become pastors anyway. The time and money has already been invested. And true or not, these are good things for people to listen to, right? The Advice so I used to ask everyone who would listen to me for two minutes what they'd advise me to do with my life. 
even people who hadn't had to make choices as adolescents in a decade anywhere near the one I was living each day. I tried to explain that things seemed to be more complicated than I'd been led to expect. I learned two things. Number one, people usually just tell you to do whatever they did at your age. If what you should do doesn't happen to be something they've already done themselves, they won't be able to advise you to do it. Number two, if you don't promptly do what people advise, they take it extremely personally and resent you. Another thing I learned is that people tend to oversimplify advice. You can tell them a very complicated situation you're dealing with, and they'll either do the aforementioned thing and say, When I was a 21-year-old dyslexic diabetic, I moved to Manhattan and took up feeding the pigeons in Central Park. Very relaxing. I guess what I'd really recommend for you in your bid to enter the Winter Olympics is to move to Manhattan and really give feeding pigeons a serious try in Manhattan, or somewhere like that. It did wonders for me. Met my wife, got an excellent doctor, got the job I currently have as an accountant. You should move to Manhattan. Or they'd say something like, it's all about compromise. The one is too specific and the other too general to be of much use. What the men and women I spoke to never did even once was say something that made me think, that gave me ideas, that gave me hope. Looking back, my culture only seemed to encourage us to look back. It was of little use to people trying to grow or move or look forward. My turn to give advice. All right, if I used a time machine now and went back to allow my young self to ask me then the same sorts of questions I once asked middle-aged men, what would my answers be? It's never easy when earnest young men ask you how to make their actual lives actually work better. The answer they least want to hear is anything along the lines of, yep, yep this, this is, is how life is, is. It, it doesn't, doesn't get a whole, whole lot better. better. It's really it's like this, and you're doing, you're doing pretty, pretty much what you should. should. Keep, Keep doing, doing it, but it's, it's not going to turn into magic. I have a bit of an advantage over all those other guys as to understanding what I was going through back then. I can be very specific and not miss the mark. So, me from the past? In general, you need to get to know who God is apart from your meeting culture. Your meeting's a human-created system like any other. Nothing more, nothing less. And it's not giving you what you need at all. It's trying to get you to conform to a culture rather than know him. Because mostly it can't tell the difference between the two anymore. God is the creator. He's a person. It's about time your 40 years in the backside of the desert started. You're going off by yourself to know God. To see if and how he exists when he's not being propped up by your meeting culture. This will mean the rejection of you by your culture. As someone unfaithful... An infidel. Someone who's dropped out of the piety competition entirely. That's the price for this. But it's worth it. You don't have to leave your culture in terms of attendance, but if you leave it in terms of your life focus, your outlook, and your freedom, it will toss you to the curb and leave you. Everyone afterward will walk by on the other side. You fear this, but that's got to happen. Because there is no substitute or proxy for knowing God personally. He is a person. It is possible to know him as a person in a way much deeper, darker, and more mysterious than any church is likely to ever tell you about. And anything that sets itself up to speak for God and take his place in your heart and mind has got to go because it's an idol. 
if you do not bow down to it and it only, if you insist upon meeting Christ yourself instead of acting like a meeting person, they will crucify you. You're going to have to get to a place where you can read the Bible and let it speak for itself. Right now, it's been so relentlessly used as a tool to justify your meeting culture that you can barely hear anything else but old people's voices saying, So So we're right, right. again. Again. You can't even read various bits of it without hearing them read out in the voices of R.J. Kirkland, Jack Wood, and Harold Highland. Try this. Read the Bible once a week only, Sundays if you like, and read an entire book of it then, if possible. Read no commentaries or ministry on it. Read it, and simply let it say what it's saying without applying it. Not to yourself, not to supporting brethren positions on things. Just let it be itself, and talk about whatever it seems to be talking about. If it seems to be talking to ancient Jews instead of you, or seems to be saying stuff you can make little sense of, or stuff that you can't reconcile with other bits of it, that's real. That's happening. Accept it. Having all the answers and pretending the whole thing is written seamlessly to you, about you, for you, that's not real. All that's got to go. Pray that God would make himself known to you as a person. Talk to him like a person. This activity will once again cost you much of your connection to brethren culture. They will accept prayers that are like good wishes for each other's success, comforting prayers. Not growth prayers, not challenging prayers, not prayers for change or repentance. They will not, as a whole, accept that prayer is a conversation and that God responds in ways that change your thinking and feeling. That he is guiding you and putting new ways of thinking, new ideas, and inspiration right into you. But you want that, so pray. But don't expect your prayers to help you fit in and get along. They will set you apart. Learn who and what God made you to be, so you can be it. No one else knows this stuff. No one else can do it. You're already being yourself, to some degree. You're one of those people who simply can't help it, can't pass for usual, can't blend. Unlike a lot of people in your culture, you are not in danger of simply having no identity, or of losing it. Personality and individuality make the herd very nervous. But you're on that path of being yourself already, There's no turning back, so go down it with God. This will cost you any last hope of fitting in seamlessly with the meeting. People are waiting, and in some cases praying, that you will grow to be less yourself, to make things easier for everyone. That's never going to happen, ever, and it shouldn't. So be your full God-intended self. No one else is qualified for the job. Your meeting culture has taught you a lot about the world and the flawed nature of other churches and human systems, using the Pharisees as an example of what characterizes human systems, how good intentions soon become about counterfeit progress, image consciousness and pride, turned upside down to take the form of shame when necessary. This is hard. Your own church culture is just another one of the myriad human systems out there. Everything it has taught you about all those human systems applies to it. Everything about the flesh, which cannot please God, which vainly puffs itself up, which falls short and does harm, all to look like it's succeeding? This human religious system you were born into is not immune to any of that. It is an idol whose altars you need to kick over. You cannot serve meeting status games and God. Follow God 
not Christians. There is no happiness and blessing for you, ultimately, in your worship of this idol or any other. So that's got to go, serving that system. The body of doctrine you have been taught is rife with assumption, self-justification, twisting of scripture, and shoddy logic. Keeping that together is exhausting. Get ready to not be so sure about nearly so many things. Start at the beginning. Imagine the opposite of every assumption possibly being true as well. Look at self-serving reasons why people might be saying what they're saying. Be especially suspicious of every single thing that mainly serves the function of being propaganda for the meeting, of everything which clearly exists to perpetuate and sell the system to its members. Anti-change is equal to anti-growth and anti-learning. You will realize you know less and less all the time, and in that you will find a truer awareness of your place in reality. You will find wisdom. For you, simple will mean eventually not knowing half of the things you currently think you know, even though you are required to know them. Because make no mistake, you are expected to be sure and know any number of things you cannot possibly be sure about or know. And that's got to go too. Meeting culture is not evil, but it is human. It is a human creation. The meeting is part of this world, just like all other human systems, like UNICEF, like the Vatican, like Hollywood, like the Conservative Party of Canada. As a part of the world you've been warned against so thoroughly, meeting culture falls under the power of the prince of this world. He is routinely using it for evil, despite the very best intentions of those who serve it and enforce its agendas. The meeting has victims. You are able to name some already, starting with your father. Of course good is being done in the meeting. Human beings made it long ago with the very best ideas human reason had to offer, to try to do everything better than other churches, with every intention of achieving good, mainly using the flesh, the same old human ideas about piety and religion, correct and control, rules, shame, guilt, willpower. But the best showing of human efforts is insufficient, and you know that evil is being done through it, to it, and by it. You are suffering some of the evil the evil one is doing through the meeting. You are suffering, and you will live to suffer more of it. Get ready for that. Be clear about where it's coming from. You've got to get to a place where the meeting isn't so hardwired into you that you are a slave to its every expectation, assumption, and superstition for the rest of your life. Jesus is a savior. He didn't just die to save you from hell, he also lived and died and lives again to save you from yourself, the flesh, from this world, and from all of its human fleshly systems, including the meeting. He will save you from yourself and the meeting, whether you choose that or not. He's already begun it. Nothing less is expected by God from every Christian than to be an overcomer. You have to overcome your human-created meeting culture and its plans for your life. You have to be stronger and freer and farther-sighted and broader and more flexible and useful than it ever planned for you to be. So be that, not with the flesh, have God upgrade you. It will take the rest of your life. Being positive. This is a tough one for you. It means a whole lot of different things depending on who's using the expression. Some of it's negotiable. Some of it isn't going to happen and shouldn't. 
Being positive can mean A. Acting generally cheerful all the time. Sorry, your face doesn't work like that. And faking moods is beyond your acting ability. Jesus didn't do it either, nor Jeremiah or David. Mandatory cheerfulness is a tyranny you absolutely need to excuse yourself from serving. B. Liking all the stuff that you're supposed to like. Sorry, your heart doesn't work like that. It likes what it likes. And liking stuff that's not good or not for you, quite beyond you. Mind you, like almost every Christian you know, you suck at seeing good. So make sure you're not missing any good. Look for good you're bound to be missing and try to value it. C. Not contemplating the downsides, inconsistencies, and problems of things in any detail. Unfortunately, it's not only your God-designed makeup, but pretty much your job to study all of this. Not negotiable. D. Being generally patient and kind. You can do this, so do it. It's important. People won't understand about the above stuff that's annoying and disturbing them, so they will try to correct it or judge it. Your whole life, you'll have to put up with people judging you to be a judgmental person, criticizing you for being critical and being negative about your negativity. And it's done because they don't know any better than to try to fix the problem that way. And they probably can't know better and don't want to anyway. So return good for evil. That includes returning comprehension and acceptance for incomprehension and rejection. You have to know better than to participate in things you see the folly and harm in. Don't just add more crap to the towering pile of crap. Understand stuff even when you can't support stuff. Add good to it rather than attacking it. You have to be gentle and firm, kind and warm, especially when refusing to negotiate the above non-negotiable stuff. You don't have to be nice all the time, but kindness, warmth, firmness, and genuine understanding are powerful, undeniable things. Women Stop emphasizing and focusing so much upon their differences to men. Work the angle of them being more or less a variation upon what you are as much as you can. Seek connection rather than reveling childishly in their differences. As to romantic attachment, there are three dynamics going on. There is your recently flared up interest in her. There is her possible interest in you, both very fleeting things. And there is a more important thing, the potential for a relationship growing all by itself, love being added by God, rapport being something quite beyond either of you creating. So... Stop trying so hard to create rapport. You can't. If it isn't springing up by itself repeatedly and lastingly, even in the form of arguments, then it's not alive. Meet lots of girls and pay attention to any who you can work or entertain yourself well with. Get used to women being polite or even nice to you. Don't mistake that for rapport. Talk to stunningly beautiful women whenever possible and compliment their looks. You need to get used to complimenting women and also to how little women being beautiful really means. Women are to be appreciated. Learn to show them as a gender that you do without needing anything. Take a sip of their beauty with your eyes, smile, and move on. B. Wait for rapport to grow if it's going to. With friends, with everyone, it needs time and space and privacy to do it. Oh, and you are absolute poison for any girl determined to make your church culture work in her married life in just the same way it failed to work in your parents. 
and you are too reminiscent of your culture for any girl determined to try to escape it. You talk about it all the time. D is for depression. For you, your culture has slowly become a toxic, depressing swamp in which to grow into a healthy adult. It is repeatedly pushing you to stop being yourself, and it really isn't a fair arrangement on any level. Like all human systems, it has a way of punishing specialness and rewarding the empty, meaningless, and mundane. Because systems, like all human creations, as compared to God's own creations, do not really grow or mature, and they need uniformity rather than the diversity God delights in creating. In particular, it's causing two very unhealthy things to happen to you. A. You are emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically constipated right now and growing thoroughly poisoned by the rotting remnants of what would have been joy, pleasure, warmth, passion, and affection, but have all been locked away inside you past their best before dates, and so have rotted. Neither your family nor your culture has provided you with a mechanism for letting out positive, fond, loving stuff in a way that works for you. You are warned not to like people and things whenever you are likely to. So it is all spoiled. This toxic stuff needs to be expressed like your dog's anal glands get expressed at the vets. It's emotional pus. And it's not going to be pretty either. No one's going to like it. So make ugly art of it. Serious art. Don't be lazy and stoop to mockery and parody. Pin down the targets of your ire and vivisect them, artfully and thoroughly. And don't let anyone see any of it unless they, too, are artists. Even then, they are unlikely to understand. Art is for you, and it is not entertainment. Do not laugh at sin. Do not laugh at hypocrisy. Do not laugh at human failings. Do not mock that stuff. Do not scoff. Accept what you see, because you are guilty of it, too, and would like to repent of it. You can laugh at it, Cry at it or art at it. Do that last one. And most of all, start daily letting that good stuff out before it rots like this. Sing, dance, touch people, give compliments. Let that good stuff out, shine a bit. It's far more important than you know. Otherwise, you will be like a black hole, sucking in all light around you and providing none yourself. It's in you. Let it out. B. You are emotionally, spiritually, psychologically starving right now, too. What feeds your heart and your spirit? Seek that out. The world is full of all kinds of good, healthy stuff. Geography, beauty, conversation, challenges, ideas, songs, stories, meals, stuff like that. Go get some. Because the lie truly feeding a lengthy bout of depression is that the world has no good stuff in it. That's a lie, okay? What happens is you are trained and you have a reflex reaction when poisoned by the good urges gone bad to turn away from all potential good stuff, to starve yourself even more, to avoid a future backlog of joy response turned sour. Feed your head, feed your heart, feed your soul, however you can. Don't let them starve. And when you feel a little fondness, a little warmth, a little appreciation, find some way to let that out before it spoils. Additional. A. Be yourself more rather than trying to be yourself less. 
Be a better version of you. And don't try to be anyone else, ever. Not to fit in, not for any reason. B. You can think whatever you want and do whatever you want without explaining it to other people first and getting their approval. You don't have to convince anyone of anything. You don't even have to notify anyone of anything. You're here to be. So be. Leave it up to others to demand explanation and for you to be too busy being to give it to them. C. You aren't a group person. You never have been and never will be. God did that on purpose. Many, many people in the world aren't group people. Some of them are miserably going along with group agendas, newly minted traditions, and a thousand random expectations. Others are just bored. Don't waste your time on groups. They really don't work for you. In fact, your main use to a group is to take care of its victims and to point out the obvious when a group gets so dysfunctional that members are actually willing to ask someone with a pure, agendaless outsider's perspective what it is he sees, what might be causing the problem. Mostly, groups are just threatened by people with your mindset and by people who draw attention to the fact that there are victims. But what human system does not have victims? D. You value your roots and where you live. That's the kind of person you are. You're not the kind of person who needs to move away to be happy. You love having your roots close at hand, and also being able to travel away from them and back again. That's the thing that works for you. Exploit your roots and take regular trips away from them too. E. When most people talk, often they aren't meaning what they're saying in any way that will remain relevant in a week's time. Often, they don't even remember stuff they said a few hours earlier. You're different from that. You're a bit of a tape recorder. People often find that very challenging and upsetting and weird. They're banking on no one paying any more attention to what they're saying than they themselves are. They know they're being recorded when they talk near you, and that makes them reluctant to go on record. You don't even have to gossip it to others. You just have to remember it for a few decades to make people uneasy. F. People think you're complicated and hard to understand. You aren't. It's just hard for them to believe that you really are what you really are. G. You're a science fiction and fantasy geek. Explore that stuff. You love it. Don't try to be too cool to be made happy by fandom. Love it. Love those who make it and those who love it. Now, I'm going to get back in my TARDIS, so remember to be nice to people, sing songs, share kindness and warmth with everyone, and do what you like without telling anyone or arguing about it first. May the force be with you. Phasers on kill. The road goes ever, ever on to the Batcave Excelsior. So I was in an unusual, but not, I think, unique position at crunch time in my teens and early twenties. When it was well and truly time to become who I was supposed to be as an adult person and figure out where I fit. Because normal certainly wasn't good enough for a brethren person. I'd been raised to choose daily not to live just like any normal person might. Trained to not even be able to walk around living the life of a normal person without feeling filled with shame. Because Christians had to be better than normal people, to live better lives that meant more. 
Being merely world normal meant ending up in hell because you had clearly never been a true Christian. To be merely normal would be a fall from grace. It was beneath us, a poor testimony. Even after leaving her admittedly very cultish compared to ours exclusive brethren group, Carol says, My standards were definitely very high for myself, partly because I felt the weight of that alone-in-the-world responsibility very keenly. But as I gradually assimilated into the wider world and got a truer understanding of humanity, I rapidly became more forgiving of both myself and others, I think, probably within the first few years of leaving. All this put a lot of pressure on us hard to find a place and know who we were. It all came back to being expected to never fit in anywhere except as part of my own insular church culture. What I needed at that point was to meet lots and lots of different Christian people and talk and listen to them. That didn't happen. I was cut off from the rest of the Christian community in my town. I'd been deeply trained to unthinkingly choose not to be part of the Christian subculture that was out there, with its own concerts and videos and celebrities, games and slang. Once again, brethren people of my stripe were required to remain above all these attempts to take the things of God and bring them down to an earthly level. Wrong-headed attempts to make Christianity fun for us, it was felt, instead of just being fun for God. My church was supposed to be the real one, and so it was thought good to not connect much to other Christians who didn't come to our meetings. To do otherwise would have been beneath us, and dangerous. Before the church division happened, I was already being encouraged to separate myself from all that dangerous stuff, as it was cropping up among us. And then, sure enough, self-fulfilling prophecy that it was, All those people who were into Christian rock and Christian videos and slang and stuff soon lost sight of the clear leading of Scripture. Sadly, they found themselves happily at another church or setting up a more modern, accepting brethren group of their own, where sadly they attended happily, the Judases. So I was to be careful, protect myself, draw away from all of that. For precisely the same reasons, I hadn't been allowed to connect too much to Kevin Durkee or Peter Keyes in grade school, with the TVs in their houses and Mad Magazine and Star Wars figures everywhere. I had to avoid contamination. I needed to keep my faith from getting dirty. Well, not only my faith, but also my life, my heart, and my mind. The word we used was defiling, dirty. The opposite of defiling was edifying and my church's favorite sort of edification was stuff about avoiding defilement. Good, as presented to me at church, didn't really seem to have any identity at all, without evil. Lately, I have come to suspect that really the reverse is more likely to be true. So, reaching the end of my teens, I found that my Christian social life was the product of a lifelong practice of having all the local Christians and all the local regular kids go play outside while I was shut away from my childhood inside with the Bible, with God scowling over my shoulder the whole while, waiting to wrap my knuckles if I skipped a cubit or a begat. I know that Muslim, Jehovah's Witness, and Mormon kids, along with any number of kids with control-freak atheist parents, report having a similar experience of childhood, and a similar experience of not knowing how to connect to people once they'd left home. Some Christians, though, had large, warm families with a lot of connection in them. This always seemed to help out kids who are raised like that. Families really helped a lot of people in our culture. Even if the family connection involved a lot of fighting, at least it was connection. At least they weren't shut away alone. Having a bunch of brothers and sisters to play and fight with no doubt added so much. 
my own family, had a lot of gray, awkward, empty silence, distance, isolation. For the heart of a child, this is like putting a plastic bag over his head with an elastic band around the neck. The Power of Fear Our cultures teach us what to fear. They teach superstitious fear of whatever they think threatens or whatever exaggeratable fears they can sell products to alleviate. See gluten. Also Y2K, swine flu, peanuts, meat, germs, the sun, water, and the air. And cartoons. This does not so much serve the people as it emphasizes the supposed importance and necessity of the cultural system itself. So let's review the fears. We Plymouth Brethren people truly feared this world that hates Jesus so much. We feared television, which was a window looking out onto said Jesus-hating world. We feared alcohol, because it would make us alcoholics. We feared movies, because they would make us addicted to pornography and dirty our faith and reputations. We feared other churches and books written by other Christians, because they might warp our faith and make us believe things about God and Christians that weren't true. For example, that maybe our church wasn't actually better than other people's. Most of all, we feared anyone mistaking us for normal people, somehow confusing us for the mere mortals who lived all around us, the lost souls, the damned. We needed to be examples to the world. We didn't fear isolation, alienation, narrow-heartedness, the extinction of forgiveness, grace and mercy among us, unthinking Pharisee and Jezebel spirits in our dealings with others, spiritual drought, blindness, poverty, the completely sliced and diced state of the Christian community in our area, or anything else we might otherwise have realized we needed to beseech God for. And we should have feared all that. We should have prayed about it collectively, publicly. We were spiritually poor, blind, and naked, and we didn't fear it or feel it, because that was normal for us. But I was smothering in there, and there were problems with the only allowable relief from it, my church's own youth group stuff. My father and the men who ran it didn't get along. In fact, most of the men running it had been the very ones who got my father kicked so roughly to the sidelines and forbade him helping out or speaking up at church. Ironically, they said they were doing this because he wasn't loving enough. Oddly, the experience taught him very little about love, mercy, and forgiveness. To make matters worse, one of the married men who was organizing and hosting our youth group events at his house was having an affair with my married aunt. I bring this up not to judge them, but to convey succinctly why it was hard for me to accept him as a mentor and to plainly share with you the kinds of things that made youth group awkward. I was aware of all of this in adolescence. And our youth group was a bit of a battleground at that point. There was a struggle over our hearts and lives and minds. Would we be taught good scriptural brethren ways, or would we be seduced by modern Christian crap leaking in from other churches? Some of the modern Christian culture, Christian pop songs, slang, celebrities, and so on, modern translations of the Bible and praying with you and your instead of thee and thy, was finally starting to find its way into our youth group at long last. And besides my being trained to fear and distrust and disrespect it rather than get into it, my parents were flat out against it and didn't like my being taught by people who didn't take a clear stand against this garbage. Garbage in, garbage out, right? Why drink from mud puddles? Also, I cannot exaggerate how much our youth group catered to upper-middle-class preppy jocks. Sports were a big thing. I had a problem with sports really kind of boycotted them, almost as a point of defiant pride. I was the Plymouth Brethren goth emo scene kid, and as far as I knew, I was the only one of those in the whole world. 
so I just wore a lot of black and was gloomy and refused to do things that involved sudden motion of any kind. People reacted with fear, disdain, and distrust. What was wrong with me? Why wasn't I enjoying it all, like they were pretending to? I almost looked miserable and tense. That wasn't right, was it? They asked me if I was a Satanist because they felt I looked like one. Black t-shirt and all. Or they just ignored me because I was different, because that's what you did when someone or something was different. Or if they changed, you ignored the situation. Important not to react. No point trying to understand. Opting out. I had reached my latter teenage years feeling cheated. I had paid my dues by sacrificing everything that would have made my life livable, and I was getting nothing in return. The past was gone. There was nothing in my present, and I saw no future for me in the culture. I went off to university having never tried a beer, never gone to a movie theater, never had a Christmas tree, never danced, never played cards, never laid a finger or anything else on the various girls I had pined after at church and at school. I was the biggest Star Wars, Star Trek fan there was who'd never seen those movies. I did not have porn. I'd never been to a party or non-church social gathering. I'd never gone to another church. I'd never joined a club, taken a lesson, or played on a team. I'd gone to all manner of brethren social things all over the continent, but hadn't really landed a girlfriend or any male acquaintances. I was trying to satisfy my love of music with oldies, easy-listening radio stuff, the stuff old people listen to, elevator music. I went to meeting. I read my Bible. I prayed. And it wasn't working. It wasn't paying off. There was no place for me to be. There was no one for me to be. At high school, one expects cliques. One expects the most popular, attractive, affluent, sporty, charming kids with the biggest personalities to have the best time and kind of change the shape of the place to better fit them and their friends. It was supposed to be different at a church. Of course it wasn't. And I had attended a regular high school, unlike the many Christian kids who are homeschooled nowadays. I had opted out of high school for the most part, mostly for religious reasons, partly by my own choice. It didn't make sense. There had been an archery team. There had been a computer club. There had been yearbook. I had been too shy to try out for those. And there had been kids who read comics, kids who programmed computers, kids who read science fiction and fantasy, kids who drew and painted and wrote songs and played music, kids who liked TV and movies. But I hadn't hung out with them apart from sometimes eating with them at lunch, certainly not on weekends or holidays. I wasn't supposed to, so I hadn't. I went off to university with no high school connections to maintain and left university without really maintaining connection to anyone once a course was over. I never even went over to fellow students' apartments. Instead, I spent weekends and holidays spectacularly failing to socially engage in a huge, lively youth group which had none of those kind of kids doing the kinds of activities I just described above, really, at all. It was like I had sacrificed the environment that fit me a tiny bit for the one that didn't fit at all. And I felt ripped off. The kids who really thrived were supplementing their youth group experience with people from farther afield. They had healthy social networks on teams at school. They had options Friday nights. And they all seemed to leave our group in the division when I was 21. I knew that some of the young people at our meeting were partying, were trying beer, sneaking cigarettes, going to movie theaters, playing video games in pool halls and arcades, being on sports teams, sneaking out to high school dances, covertly listening to ACDC, Metallica, or Kiss under the covers or in their cars. 
and they were doing just fine with meeting. No one took them terribly seriously as Christians, necessarily, but they were getting by. They were having fun. They had a circle of friends. They fit somewhere. They were fun to hang out with. They always had people around them. I felt like I had nowhere to be, nowhere to stand, no one I could be that I was allowed to be. Ruth was a very different sort of oddball to the one I was, where I'd been dark and sour and quietly verbose with a lot of anger and philosophy and discontent lurking beneath nerdy preoccupations. She was quite a bit more Anne of Green Gables. My birth culture worked with my temperament to create a stranger and pilgrim, a lifelong seeker of a place to belong and a people to belong with. When I was a child, a starry-eyed idealist who thought every word of brethren doctrine was straight from the lips of God, my state of not belonging anywhere was a badge of honor to be worn with humble pride. Among the kids at grammar school, I was the strange girl who wore her hair in two braids while the other girls wore their shoulder length, wore unfashionable dresses while the other girls wore jeans, and didn't celebrate Halloween or Christmas because they were pagan. I had no clearer sense of the meaning of that word than the other kids did, but I parroted my elders. I wandered friendless on the playground, swinging on the swings and singing Sunday school hymns to myself rather glorying and not belonging among the children of men. Among my boisterous non-brethren Irish Catholic family of dozens of cousins and aunts and uncles, I was the aloof, bookish girl who preferred to withdraw into a quiet corner and bury her nose in a book or put pencil to blank page rather than participating in noisy matches of ping-pong or loud conversations about the latest baseball game. It was a sign that I was a good Christian that I didn't fit among those awful worldly Catholics. No doubt they were very nice people, but they weren't our tribe. Among the neighborhood kids, I was the religious girl who was going to teach you John 3.16 and invite you to Bible hour in spite of yourself. As a child, I fit in among the brethren kids, just as I was supposed to. We were like a close-knit family of siblings. We all played house or pioneers or hospital, and no one felt left out or lonely. All of that changed when we became teenagers. There was no place in my birth culture for a seeker and dreamer like me, and the more I became who I was, the more I didn't belong. The kids who fit in were the kids with the showy talents, the kids who took piano lessons and could fill in playing piano for hymn sings, the kids who played on the soccer team at school and could organize a team at youth group. If you didn't play piano and couldn't stand playing sports such as soccer and volleyball, there was no place for you. There was no place for me. The other meeting young people formed a very tight, close community to which I could never belong, no matter how hard I tried. My family lived an hour and a half away from meeting, while the other kids lived within 20 miles of each other. They saw each other every day at school. They all went to the same high school, while I was never allowed to attend high school. I was homeschooled instead. And they hung out on the weekends. They had in-jokes, insider secrets, cliques, after-school activities, the camaraderie of being a cluster of Christian young people together in a secular school, a fabric of shared life that had no place for an odd man out like me. And the adults never encouraged them to try to make me feel included and wanted. Perhaps that would have been too Christ-like. It was my fault if I felt awkward and unheard and tongue-tied in the tight circles of chattering young people, 
I felt so unwanted at times that I ducked into the woods behind the meeting house or the room off the meeting room for nursing mothers or hid in our car to hide the fact that I was crying for sheer heartache. Conferences were the worst, an absolute sea of people who couldn't care less if you were there or not, all dressed in their most stylish clothes while you were dressed from the proverbial missionary barrel and had no sense of style or color coordination. I used to hang around circles of discreetly made-up young women with their neat jean skirts and lacy mantillas and spotless oxfords, waiting for someone to speak a friendly word to me as a dog might await crumbs that fell from the table, to realize that you did not and would not ever belong among the Lord's chosen people, and you weren't equipped to fit in among worldly people or church people, no matter how hard you tried. That was a mind f- Years later, on Facebook, I have added many people from both my brethren youth group circle and also from high school. I have yet to see myself in a single picture any of them posts online, despite how many Throwback Thursdays pictures of people I knew are posted. This gives me a bit of a reminder how invisible I was. It's like no one noticed me until I opened my mouth and shared my unconventional troubling thoughts and feelings. Then people headed for the hills. The most legalistic of us weren't the ones who fit in, nor the ones who most enjoyed youth activities. In fact, it was kind of the opposite. The really socially adept folk were able to have fun with kids at school, hanging out with non-Christian friends after school, then being brethren at youth group activities. They didn't take things too seriously. They hadn't put all of their eggs in that one meeting collection basket. They could have it both ways. Many of them grew up to be influential and make their local brethren group less legalistic by creating a culture in which the occasional beer was drank and people went to NHL games and so on. Legalists have generally driven folks like that away, but it hasn't always worked. Sometimes liberty wins. Not around here, I don't think, though, and not when I was in my 20s, certainly. It wasn't as hard as some might think to feel like you didn't fit in our huge youth group. And when talking years later to those then-teens who were clearly coming up with all of the ideas and forming the whole shape of events and the climate there, it is clear that they each felt like they didn't fit in either, though they ran everything. To really not fit in, all you had to do was be a quiet, not terribly attractive girl or guy who disliked noise and group activities and sports. The further into your twenties you got, the worse it was, of course. There were these girls like Ruth who were quietly, meekly attending meetings, denied post-secondary education, and waiting for a boyfriend to slowly morph into a husband to make her a mother. Some had real faith in God or the culture, and were waiting for this boyfriend in extremely figure-concealing outfits, without stooping to such tactics as flirting, wearing makeup and jewelry, dieting, working out, removing body hair, dressing fashionably, wearing contacts, or having their hair styled in any specific way. I know of several of these women who are still waiting for Prince Heho as they go through menopause. They did absolutely everything the culture demanded, but it simply hasn't paid off. For them, nor for their male counterparts. And they can't seem to get together, either. Anne only waited for her twenties and ended up marrying outside the fold, but writes about passively meeting one's spouse by saying, One thing I find was particularly destructive is the way I approached guys as a result of always just being encouraged to pray about it. I can open up journal entries at random, and they are full of longing prayers of, Lord, help me to be obedient to your will, and please let some specific brethren guy make a decisive move if it is your will. 
the irony is that I was suffering with longing, but I had this idea that I had to remain passive and that something would happen when it was God's will. I didn't know how to interact with guys that I liked, so I mostly ignored them or acted uninterested while dying inside as each Bible conference came to an end with nothing having ever happened. I was probably asked out two or three times total in my young adulthood until I left the meeting at age 27. In all three cases, I was not interested in the guy who asked, and I felt really bad saying no. The guys I liked probably thought I was not interested. I had to learn how to talk to guys I was interested in, instead of pining and praying over whether it was God's will or wait on the Lord to act. Not sure what exactly that would have looked like. If I look at my journals throughout my 20s, I see this as the most awful waste of time, energy, and potential. I would have been far better off dating and learning from the interactions rather than longing and suffering and praying about guys who probably never realized I felt anything for them. At the guy end of things, you always felt like you'd better not make a decisive move or approach a girl without the full support of God and the church culture. She had to be the one. You needed permission. There was no room for sizing things up and figuring out what you wanted. You weren't supposed to be marrying someone you just wanted. You were supposed to marry someone who was God's choice. And the church culture had to see that too. If you were someone who had trouble fitting in socially, you were kind of screwed. And you could fail to fit in due to stuff you liked as much as for stuff you didn't. If you were into computers or games or nerdy things or science fiction or Lord of the Rings or cartoons or that kind of thing, not only was the church culture trying to censor that stuff out, but you were weird to the popular sports folk, too. They'd sneak out and climb over the back fence to get at some Coors Light in a hockey game, but they'd never do that for Star Trek. Nowadays, I know I should never be surprised at how many parents and kids in Brethren Circles are very into Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and Doctor Who, and so on. But back then, most of the kids I went to youth group with either had never heard of most of that or weren't admitting to it. I didn't know Brethren people who liked what I did back then. Now, most of the smart kids' parents can talk Doctor Who right with me. Most still don't have TVs, of course, but they've got laptops and iPads. It wasn't like that when I was an adolescent. By the time I was in my early 20s, I was too old for my church's youth stuff, and not yet married. I hadn't met a girl I could date and marry and produce the next crop of brethren children with, which was kind of the goal I'd been given, which goal I was fine with, unlike the no Star Wars thing. Timely reproduction and keeping us off the streets seemed to have been much of the point of our youth group activities. But I had been marked by my culture as one of the ones who simply wouldn't be reproducing, a genetic and spiritual reject, unsuitable. And to this day, that self-fulfilling prophecy has fulfilled itself, as many group predictions can end up doing. But I am no longer certain God wants there to be a new crop of brethren children who stay brethren into their dotage anyway, not without some major reworking of what brethren even means. And I don't think the relaxation of the rules is all that needs to be done. It's great if the legalism loosens up, but what about the love? Is that starting to flourish?